George Whitfield, towards the end of his life, the itinerant evangelist, was on the end of a preaching tour from South Carolina all the way up to New England when people that were going with him kind of cornered him in a house one night and asked him why he kept preaching on the same passages over and over and over again. And he said, I'm now 55 years of age and I'm more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself and without it, you can never be saved. His friends were not satisfied with that answer. And one of them, this is according to his uh, biography, said, why, Mr. Whitfield, do you so often preach you must be born again? Well, because, replied Mr. Whitfield, looking solemnly into the face of the questioner, because you must be born again. (laughs) That certainly is in keeping with the spirit of John chapter three. This is the most glorious conversation ever. I think the most uh, incredible conversation on earth between anybody and we get to listen in as a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. It begins in John chapter three, verse one. There was a man of the Pharisees. That phrase, a man, it requires a antecedent. You don't know what man this is and the Greek language there would imply you'd have some kind of introductory formula and so you go back to the end of chapter two And you see here at the end of chapter two, remember the chapter titles and divisions are not in the original Greek. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, John 2, 23, at Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. It's important for you to understand in John's gospel that not all belief is saving belief. That not everybody who believes is actually saved or regenerate or has saving faith. There is a kind of belief that is skin deep. There's a kind of belief that is not saving belief. We're familiar with this, of course, from the letter to James, where James uh, writes there that even the demons see the identity of Jesus and they at least tremble. Even the demons believe. There's a kind of belief that people have that does not represent a transformed heart, does not represent any kind of saving faith. It's just superficial belief. And that's all over John's gospel. If you don't have a category for some belief that's not saving belief, you're not gonna be able to understand John because John's gospel is all about this dichotomy between all the people that believed in Jesus without believing in him. And you see that here. This group of people sees Jesus' signs. And so they believed in him. You know, it doesn't take a lot of faith to believe in someone who's doing miracles right in front of you. Even the Egyptian magicians could allegedly turn the water of the Nile into blood. That doesn't mean that they were from God. It doesn't take a lot of belief to believe in them. And that's the kind of belief that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, were placing in this Jesus person. Jesus had just cleansed the temple in John chapter two. He does that twice at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry. And this is devastating effects on the Jewish uh, leadership. They're getting so much of their money and their income from the temple in Passover week. Jesus shows up in Passover week, drives out all the money changers. The Sanhedrin sees this. They're disturbed by it. Jesus follows it with miracles and his own teaching. He says, you can destroy this temple. I'll build it back up again in three days. And the people marveled at him. Some of them even believed that he was actually from God. That's Nicodemus here. He actually believed that Jesus was from God. 
because he saw the signs Jesus was doing. But don't confuse that with saving faith as verse 24 makes clear. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus did not, these people believed that Jesus was from God but Jesus didn't believe that they were saved. He didn't call them his brothers and sisters, his children. He says, I don't trust you guys any farther than I can throw you. And he's not talking about God with his omnipotence here. He knows what's in their heart. And then verse 25 makes it clear that he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. Jesus says, I know you people. I don't need you to testify about me because I know how shallow you are. I know that your hearts are not changed. I know that that you have just a heart of flesh, a heart of sin, a heart of stone. And Jesus says, he uses legal terminology here. I don't need you to bear witness about me. As if Jesus were the accused and he had to call in his friends to testify on his behalf. Jesus says, I'm not the one on trial here. I don't need you to bear witness about me. Jesus is not the accused. Jesus is the judge. And you have to have that in your mind to get into John 3. Because in John chapter 3, one of those people, one of the group of people that saw Jesus do his signs, that saw him do his miracles, that heard him preach, that saw him cleanse the temple, that heard him say he was from God, one of those people says, hey, I believe he's from God. I'm going to go talk to Jesus about this and let him know that I believe he's from God. He comes. Nicodemus, he's a man of the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin is the council of 70 rulers. Some of them are scribes, some of them are lawyers, some of them are Pharisees, some of them are Sadducees. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews, so he's on the Sanhedrin. This is the council that will vote to condemn Christ later on. But for now, one of them, this Pharisee named Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night. It's an odd thing to do. It's not just a rhetorical turn of phrase here to let you know, hey, it just happened to be dark. No, this is important that he came at night, speaks, of course, of his own spiritual darkness in his own heart. He's sneaking around here. It's weird to go to somebody's house unannounced. It's even weirder to do it at night. If I showed up at your house, knocked on the door and said, hi, just saying hi, pastoral visit. You'd say, that's strange, but come on in and have some tea. Roy boss is what I prefer. But if it was 11.30 at night, hey, just me, pastoral visit, 11.30. I'll give you a minute to put a shirt on. I'll be down here. (laughs) You don't do that. You don't show up at somebody's house in the middle of the night, but that's what Nicodemus does here. It's even stranger in a world without electricity, in a world where the night is ruled by robbers and thieves, Nicodemus is going then because he doesn't want to be seen. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He'd be recognizable. And yet he wants to get in on this Jesus thing. Jesus is obviously from God. Look at what he just did. This is Nicodemus' thinking. So he wants to get in on this whole kingdom of God thing early. If the Messiah is going to come and establish the kingdom of God right here in Jerusalem, Nicodemus wants in on the ground floor of this thing. He wants to be the first of the Sanhedrin to join Jesus' side. And so he comes at night, not with enough confidence to do this publicly. He's just feeling this out right here. He goes all sneaky style at night. And he says, Rabbi, a term of respect. We know that you're a teacher who's from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. He means it complimentary. He's telling Jesus, you're probably going to be stoked to know this, Jesus, because I'm, you know, after all, I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. This is important that I'm saying this, but I think you're from God. 
You can almost see the self-righteousness coming off of the page in this. Now remember John 2, 25. Does Jesus need anybody to bear testimony about him? No. Is he impressed with Nicodemus' so-called faith? No. And so what's gonna follow here in this story is the most remarkable reversal where Jesus, who is starting the story almost as the accused with Nicodemus coming to bear witness about him, he's gonna end the story as the judge. And Nicodemus, the member of the Sanhedrin who comes in in his position of authority to render a verdict about who Jesus really is, is going to find himself in the dock. He's going to be put on trial. Now, the background of this whole story is the concept of regeneration. So let me define that for you here, regeneration. Regeneration simply means to give new life, the act of receiving or imparting new life. Generation is to just create life. Regeneration is to create new life. The biblical word begat from the, the Old Testament, begatting is to, to give life, to generate, would just be begat is often translated just generated, that's to give life. But regeneration is to give new life. You understand, I'm sure you remember from your elementary school days that if a lizard loses half of its tail or loses one of its legs, it regenerates, it grows back. This concept of regeneration is that people need new life. They don't just need life. You have life. You all have life. You're listening. You have ears. Your heart is beating. You have life. But that's not the kind of life you need. You don't need physical life. You need regeneration. You need spiritual life. You need to be brought to spiritual life. And so as an outline this morning, I'm going to talk about how we can understand regeneration. Your outline will be understanding regeneration. And we're going to use this incredible conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus to do just that. This conversation is so incredible, by the way, they made a whole TV series out of it. It's called Nick at Night. <laughs> we'll just pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> First, regeneration is a necessity. Regeneration is a necessity. Nicodemus comes and says, hey, Rabbi, I know that you're from God because you do incredible things. Jesus answered him. And before we get to what Jesus says, just marvel for a second that Jesus answers. Do you see a question mark in verse two? I don't see a question mark in verse two. Nicodemus didn't actually ask a question. But Jesus, this is a sign of his divinity. You know, there's so many proofs of Jesus' divinity. He created the world in John 1. If you've seen the Father, you've seen him in John 14. He's the Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12. Here's another proof of his divinity. He can see people's hearts. He looks right through Nicodemus' Sanhedrin robe, right through his pharisaical garb, and sees right to the big hole in his heart. He answers the question that Nicodemus didn't have the courage to ask, how can I be part of the kingdom of God? Jesus answers that question. Truly, truly, that Greek word, by the way, truly, truly, it's, it's amen, amen. When we pray, we end our prayers with amen because amen just means truth. We end our prayers with amen because we're saying, Lord, if this prayer is true, may it come to pass. If you didn't know that, now you do. <laughs> That's why you say amen at the end of your prayer because you're saying, God, if this is true, let it be true. Jesus doesn't end his conversation with amen. Jesus starts it with amen. <laughs> he says, this is true and this is true, Nicodemus. Let me answer a question you didn't ask. Truth, truth. Let me tell you this. Unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. That phrase born again, nefesh and nothen in Greek. Nefesh is the word for spirit, a nothen from above. Unless you get a new spirit from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Nefesh is translated here born again because what does it mean to get a new spirit? It has to be a new birth. It's an idiom. From above, the word anothen can mean from above or again. I think Jesus is using it in a way that encompasses both meanings. Nicodemus is going to take it as a second time and so that's why it's translated born again. But it could also be rendered born from above. Both are true. Both are implied by this. That for you to even see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now this phrase, the kingdom of God, the Jews, remember, were looking for the kingdom of God. They were waiting for Jesus to establish the the kingdom of Yahweh on earth in Jerusalem, expel the Roman rule, and bring the kingdom of God to pass. And so what Nicodemus is saying is, I see you, Jesus. I see that you're from God. You've done the miracles. I believe you. And so I want to be part of the kingdom of God. How? And Jesus is saying, you are not even going to see it. You're so excited for the Romans to go, you won't even get to see that. You've got your political map laid out and you see the Romans leaving and me starting the kingdom of Israel right here. You're not even looking at the right map. Close that map. I'm talking about over here, Jesus says. You need a spiritual birth. You wanna be part of the physical kingdom on earth, which is coming, by the way. The physical kingdom of God will be established on earth in Israel in the future. That's what Nicodemus is looking for. And Jesus is saying, you aren't even looking in the right place. You're not barking up the right tree. You won't even get to see that physical kingdom unless you are first saved, unless you are regenerate, unless you are born again. Without X, no Y. Without regeneration, no kingdom of God. Now the phrase kingdom of God is going to be used interchangeably with eternal life. In verse 15, Jesus is gonna call it eternal life. It's going to be in contrast with eternal damnation or eternal death or condemnation in verses 17, 18, and 19. So Jesus is saying here, on the one hand, eternal life. On the other hand, eternal death. On the one hand, the kingdom of God. On the other hand, judgment from God. One or the other. And unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not have eternal life. You will not be with God when you die. Instead, absent new birth, absent regeneration, you will be condemned by God when you die. You'll be separated from him. You'll be condemned because of your own sin. And so here is the million dollar question. What takes somebody from being condemned by their sin to having eternal life? What takes them from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God? How do you go from here to here? That's the question. And just marvel that Jesus answers it in a way unheard of. There's no other religion that has an answer anything close to what Jesus says. Most people in the world, not just most Americans, most people in the world would say there's basically two ways to go to heaven. Either you don't believe in it or here's two ways. One, be a good person. Work hard, be a good father, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good mother, be generous to your kids, show up at work on time, you know, don't have an affair kind of thing, just be a good family man and work hard and do what you're supposed to do in life and certainly God will show you mercy. Or on the other hand, you get people who say, be religious, be religious, devote yourself to religion, devote yourself to being spiritual. Oftentimes those two camps are exclusive. (laughs) 
Those that lead good and moral lives look at the religious people and say they're such hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with them. And those who are religious say, look at those people. They don't even know God. But the truth is most people in the world think they're going to heaven when they die because they fit in one of those two camps. Even in the church, you get people that try to check both boxes. Oh, I'm a good person. I'm good to my family. I don't do too many wicked things. And I'm religious. I go to church, I serve in the church, I do this or that and the other thing in the church. So God is gonna see that I did this and he is going to say welcome into heaven. And oftentimes that thinking, you start to see a window into that thinking when it doesn't even have to be Christian. You know, this person is in a different religion but they're so devoted to that religion, certainly God will show them mercy. They're so religious. Here's a question when you start thinking like that. Is that person, that so religious person you're thinking of, are they more religious than Nicodemus, who was on the Sanhedrin, who was a Pharisee, who was ruling in the Ju- Jerusalem Judaic temple? More religious than him? Because he came to Jesus and said, I want to be part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, No, you're not born again. You need something totally different than what you have, because you do not have what you need. You need to be born again again, or you won't even get to see this. That's the necessity of regeneration. Secondly, the impossibility of regeneration. You need it, but you can't get it. Look at verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? You have to appreciate the just absurdity of what Nicodemus is hearing. Nicodemus did not grow up in a world with John 3.16 bumper stickers. He has not heard this expression before. If somebody were to tell you, you must be born again, How would you answer that question? If you haven't heard, if you're not familiar, if you're not fluent in Christianese, what does it mean to be told you must be born again? Nicodemus, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's pretend that he is being sarcastic with what he goes on to say in verse four. Can you enter a second time into your mother's womb and be born? Let's say he's being sarcastic. He's not really saying, what am I supposed to climb back in? (laughs) I can't do that. Let's say he understands what Jesus is saying is that you need a new start. That's the most charitable interpretation. You just need a new start. How do you get a new start? How? If I were to tell you for you to go to heaven, you just need to start your whole life over, what would you do? Starting right now, I'm not gonna do this sin anymore. Right now. Now, is that story, now that I made the jump and everything, is it going to turn out any differently than it did on the other side of the jump? No. It will still turn out the same sad ending because I brought my heart with me over the line. You can't start your life over. And even if you could, it wouldn't go any better for you. You'd like to think you would learn from your mistakes, but no, your heart is a slow learner. You can start over every day. And you'll need a new start every day. And none of them will get you to heaven. Nicodemus says, can you do it when you're old? You hear somebody say, oh, I'll give my life to Christ after I lead my whole life, do what I want to do, then I'll give my life to Christ at the end of my life. No, you won't. Do you think it'll be easier to repent from the way you've lived your life at the end of it? It won't be easy. You can't break a habit when you get older. Think about all the work you go into to change one element of your life and you're gonna start your whole life over at the end of your life. You can't do it. You can't do it. That's what Nicodemus says. How can it be done? 
Nicodemus understands that you cannot start your life again. If it were up to willpower, it couldn't be done, and that's why regeneration is an impossibility. But thirdly, regeneration is divine. Regeneration is divine. Jesus answered. Now he's answering an actual question. The question was, how can you be born again? It's impossible, Jesus. How can you do it? Jesus answers, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That phrase, water and the spirit, there are those that say water means baptism and then spirit means conversion, and I think that's just wrong. That's a totally wrong understanding of this passage. It's imported from who knows where. It's usually cults that teach that. You have to be baptized in their church, although Church of Christ teaches that too, that Water here means baptism, and then you can be saved after that, or you can't be saved until you have baptism. I mean, that's just not what Nicodemus was here. That's not what Jesus would mean. Baptism doesn't start in the church until Acts. That just be a crazy thing to be seen right here. It doesn't make any sense. A better understanding is that water speaks of physical birth and spirit speaks of a supernatural birth, meaning you're born in the physical life and then you need a spiritual birth later. And that, at least, that one at least makes sense of the context and it fits with what's happening in John 3, but it's still not, I think, the right understanding of that. The best understanding of water and the spirit here is to fill this out from the Old Testament where these phrase, water and the spirit, is used over and over and over again. And it always speaks of the cleansing that the Spirit does in cooperation with the Word of God. The Spirit brings the Word of God to bear on a heart and it purifies the human heart. Water and Spirit give a new heart. You see this in Numbers 19 where the priests take the sacrifice, they take the ashes, they then pour water on the ashes to symbol the purity. You see this Psalm 51 verse nine where David says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Cleanse me with hyssop. It's speaking of the power of the spirit and the word of God to cleanse even the adulterer's hearts. Isaiah 32, 15 would be another place where there the idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out like water comes from because the Holy Spirit is, it, it, it cleanses you. He washes you. He sanctifies you through the word. It's described as a spirit being poured out like a pitcher of water. The pitcher is poured and the water cleanses. The Holy Spirit is poured on you. We, we even use that expression. We pray that God would pour out his spirit. That phrase comes from the idea of water and the spirit operating together. The spirit purifying. And I have many other verses of this. Jeremiah 2, 13, Joel 2, 28 and 29, speaking of the end times, but the most well-known, the most important to understand is Ezekiel 36. If you didn't write those other ones down, write this one down. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. This is the new covenant promise where Yahweh says, I'll take you, speaking to Israel, from the nations where you were exiled, and I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's the language in Numbers 19. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from your uncleanliness, and I will wash all of your idols away from you. So God says, I'll sanctify you through washing away your sins. And how will you do that? Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Do you see the language of regeneration? You need a new heart. The water and the spirit together operate to purify you by giving you a new heart. Uh, Yahweh says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh. So your flesh, bad, it's alive, but it's sinful, 
and it has a stony heart. God says, I'll take the stony heart out and give you a heart of flesh. Not that it matches the rest of your sinful flesh, but that it's also spiritually alive. Your flesh is physically alive, and God says, through the washing of the water of the word and the Holy Spirit, I will give you a spiritual heart. Stony heart gone, fleshly heart in. Now, can you do that to yourself? No. You can't do any more than you can do open heart surgery on yourself. I don't care how good of a surgeon you are, you can't do open heart surgery on yourself. It's not an issue of getting the right mirrors. It's just not gonna happen. (laughs) And this is why it can't happen. Because you're not in control of it. Look at verse six. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Get two dogs together, you'll have puppies. Get two cats together, you'll have kittens. Your fleshly fallen self, your pre-salvation self, your unregenerate self cannot produce anything that will be pleasing to God. It's not capable of doing that any more than cats can make puppies. Your heart is a factory, by the way. You're a factory worker. You are good at making things. Your heart is cranking things out all the time. The problem is it's not making things that are pleasing to God. It's not in the fallen heart's nature to do that. So you need a new heart. Flesh only makes flesh, Jesus says. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capitalized in ESV, I think that's right, the Holy Spirit is the one who can make you spiritually alive. When I was in middle school, we did this science experiment, Cleveland Junior High in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We were supposed to bring in a pound of hamburger meat. It would be sealed and left in the classroom overnight. The next day, we then examine it to prove that what Pasteur said was true, that flies did not appear in the meat. That was the idea. Supposedly, people used to believe that rotten meat could produce flies out of the rotting flesh, would bring uh, flies, but Pasteur said, though not true, death only produces death. If you know much about Pasteur, I believe that he was on to something theological, but that's a different time. And so we bring in meat to prove the statement that the dead flesh will not produce flies. And it was a great experiment. I remember it to this day. My science teacher would be proud. I then took the meat out of the classroom and threw it in my locker and went home for the weekend. (laughs) Came back Monday into the hallway and I think that a raccoon had climbed in the locker and died. It does not occur to me when I walk into the hallway there that it's my own meat in a locker that's causing this abomination in the hallway. So I just don't even go to my locker. I U-turn back to my next class. First period, let's go. Second period, I don't need books. I'm not going that hallway again. Third period, I'm like, oh, this teacher will kill me if I don't have my books. So I go to my locker, and then I discover, oh, Atahaish, I am the man. (laughs) I didn't even need Nathan to tell it to me. Took the meat out, threw it in the locker. It smelled so awful, I thought there would be a raccoon in my locker. But you know what? Pasteur was right. The dead meat did not create a raccoon. (laughs) Nothing was alive in it, just awful. Your fallen self cannot produce spiritual life. It's not capable of doing it. But God does it. If you are Nicodemus, have you ever heard anything that insane? He's one of the Jewish leaders. 
You're privileged to be born into Israel. The God of Israel cares for Israel. You're there by birth. God gave a covenant with Moses and you work at keeping the covenant. You do the sacrifices, you keep the laws, you wear the tassels. You are doing that because that's how you demonstrate you're you're part of the covenant. You're going to heaven when you die by being a good Jew. And here comes Jesus who says, you don't even have the right parts to build this. Those tassels don't mean anything. You need a new heart, Nicodemus, and by extension, you. Nicodemus, coming from what's often regarded as a works righteous system, just this would floor him. And you know what he's floored because look at verse seven. Don't marvel, Jesus says. I mean, Nicodemus' jaw is down on the floor. He came here to judge Jesus, and now he's being told that you don't even have the right birth. Don't marvel. Pick your jaw back up, Nicodemus. Put that back on your face. Don't marvel that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus makes this basic point. You don't control the winds. I took my family last week back to Albuquerque for the balloon fiesta there. 600 or some balloons, all mass ascension. They go up together. It's the best place to balloon in the world. That's what, that's what they say, and this is why. Because the winds from the south and the desert come in, the hot air comes in, and they go, it blows north, and there's the mountains on the, the east and the volcanoes on the west that create this like wind tunnel, but the cold air from the backside of the mountains comes in the front and goes south, and so you have what they call a box effect, where the balloons take off, go high up, and blow this way, and they lower, and they blow back, and they can land right where they took off. It's amazing. At least that's what the videos say. Unfortunately, nobody showed the wind those videos. One day they take off and they fly all the way to the Indian Reservation. They're out of there. <laughs> Another day, oh, it's too windy to take off. Another day, oh, some of the balloons will take off, but the wind is just too rough. And I mean, does not the wind know that people traveled from all over the world for this? It's almost like the wind doesn't care. Come on, wind, get it together, because if you don't blow in the right direction, people might not come back and with their balloon. Come on. You can't control the wind. Why does Jesus use this illustration? He's making the point that you cannot control salvation. That God will save whom God is going to save. That runs so contrary to our human nature, doesn't it? Oh, we want to be in charge so bad. We want, can't Jesus just tell Nicodemus what to do? Give him something to do. Give him an aisle to walk down. Tell him to go be baptized. Give him something to do so that he is the one who's baking the cake. (laughs) Let him put in some ingredients. But if you did, then salvation would depend on man who wills or man who runs. And that's not the salvation of the Bible. This is why this is so offensive. Salvation in the Bible does not depend upon man who wills and it does not depend on man who runs. It depends on God who chooses. Now, imagine being a Sadducee or on the Sanhedrin or a Pharisee and hearing that. 
What are you gonna do with that? You're gonna argue with it. Look at Nicodemus, verse nine. How can this be? I don't think he whispered that. I think it's night, but he's lost his nighttime voice. Are you out of your mind, Jesus? How can it be that it's like the wind? That cannot possibly in any world be true. And Jesus goes right back at him. Jesus answers him, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? And he uses the article now. There's no antecedent required here. Nicodemus is by identity the ruling teacher of Israel, a reference to his Sanhedrin. He came there proud of being on the Sanhedrin. Oh, he's the one who will render a verdict on Jesus. And Jesus flips that on him and says, how dare you say you're the judge if you don't even know the law? You want to be a teacher of Israel and you think you are in charge? God is in charge, specifically the Holy Spirit. We have the elder qualifications, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. You want to be an elder? You need to desire the office of an overseer. You need to be above reproach, husband of one wife, and so on. Here's one that's not often on the list, but it should be. Do you believe the Holy Spirit is sovereign over salvation? Because here, Nicodemus doesn't. And Jesus says, you can't be the teacher of Israel. You don't get the Holy Spirit as the one who brings salvation out of the pulpit. Go get a different job, Nicodemus, because you are not fit to hold the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen. You don't receive our testimony. Jesus is playing the Trinity card here. He's saying, I'm the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm part of the Trinity. I have seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I'm telling you about it, and you're not going to receive what I tell you? If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how would you believe if I told you heavenly things? I'm telling you, Jesus is looking at Nicodemus, and he's saying, if you want to go to heaven, you do this on earth right now. You have to be born again, and you're not in charge. You're not in control of it, but without a new birth, you're not going to heaven. Nicodemus says, that's not true. And Jesus says, I'm from heaven, and I'm talking to you about an earthly way to get there, and you're denying it. Verse 13, no one's ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's what I mean by he's playing the Trinity card. He's saying, have you been to heaven, Nicodemus? Were you part of the divine council between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit where the three of them crafted the plan of salvation, wrote in the book of life, decreed from before the foundations of time that Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? Nicodemus, were you part of that conversation? Well, I was. I was there, Jesus is saying. I was there when the book was written. I was there when the plan was crafted. I was there when the father was decided to send the son and the father and the son decided to send the spirit. And I'm here telling you about it. So go ahead and listen. He even uses his divine title from the book of Daniel, the son of man, identifying him as the Messiah. In Daniel, the son of man is the Son of man par excellence. The image of God perfectly is in the savior. The image of man perfectly is in the savior. That's what the title means. This is the divine nature of regeneration. It is God who does this. It's not just a new covenant reality, although in the new covenant it will be permanent. The people will be sealed and brought into a church body that transcends national borders. It's an old covenant truth as well, though. No salvation without regeneration. Nicodemus should have, I mean, just think of any illustration from the Old Testament. Did Israel choose God or did God choose Israel? Did Abraham choose God or did God choose Abraham? Did Isaac choose God or did God choose Isaac? How about this? Did Jacob choose God or did God choose Jacob? 
Or there's a fight involved even. There were punches thrown. It does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who saves. Fourthly, regeneration begins with repentance. It's a necessity. It's an impossibility. It's divine. And it begins with repentance. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Story, it might be unusual to you. Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. People, Israelites, led out of the wilderness, in the, or led out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness. God's giving them manna. They don't like the manna. They complain about the manna. Manana bread, manana pot pie, and so on. In fact, in Numbers 21, verse 5, they tell Moses, we've had it with your worthless food. Worthless food? You go grow it, Israelites. God has had it with their worthless grumbling. And so God, it says, in Numbers 21, verse 6, Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people. Fiery, I think, refers to the bite, but I'm happy picturing the snakes on fire, too. It makes it a... Compelling illustration. Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. These are fiery snakes now. You freak out when that, you know, six-foot rat snake slithers across your front yard that wouldn't even hurt your kitten. Now imagine a fiery rat snake slithers through your yard. (laughs) The only way to make that snake sighting worse is make him on fire. You think you're afraid of snakes now. Where did these ones come from? They came from the center of the camp. God sent them to the center of the camp. They worked outward in a circle. You get this from from Numbers 21. They worked outward in concentric circles going after the people, biting them, and the people are dying. People are running every which way. Some of them get to Moses, and they beg him. They say, we've sinned. We've spoken against Yahweh and against you. I'm going to say that's not genuine conversion, by the way. They're upset about the snakes. We're so sorry we made fun of the the manna. (laughs) Please pray to Yahweh to take the serpents away from us. Moses prays to God. You remember what God tells Moses? Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. So make this kind of snake out of bronze. We find out Moses uses bronze. Lift it up on a pole and whoever is bitten can look at the pole and live. That has got to be the strangest answered prayer ever. Fiery snakes biting people. Okay, the solution, make a snake, put it on a pole back in the middle of the camp. People turn around and look at the, what's that supposed to teach? Well, the people are blaming God for their suffering. The people are saying God's killing us. Is it God that's killing them really though? No, it's their sin. And to demonstrate that it's not the snake that's killing them, but it's their sin that provoked the snake. To demonstrate that, to be saved, they're gonna have to look at a snake. Every time you see the Blue Cross logo, the, you know, the Blue Cross with the snake wrapped around it, that's what this is coming from. It's a little reminder to you, your doctor has the same afflictions you do. <laughs> you look at the snake and you say, I'm placing my faith in the God of that snake. What do you have to do to look at that? You gotta stop running. Snake's chasing you, you gotta stop. You have to have enough faith to stop running away from the snake. And if you've ran from a snake, you know that takes a lot of faith. Stop running from the snake. Stop, turn around, look at the image of what is afflicting you. And Jesus says in verse 15 of John 3, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The son of man will be lifted up and if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. The word eternal life is used 50 times in the New Testament. This is the first use in John's gospel. This is a big deal here. 
Why the snake illustration? Well, certainly Jesus will be lifted up outside of Jerusalem, like the Moses' snake. He'll be lifted up, like you had to look at the snake and live, you have to look at Jesus and live, but it's even more than that. The snake was the image of what was afflicting people. Jesus becomes the image of what's afflicting us. Your sin, it's not God that's killing you. It's not God that's separating from him. That's what's made clear in verse 17, that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but if you reject him, you stand condemned because of your sin. It is your sin that is killing you. It is your sin that is separating you from God. And if you're not regenerated, you suppress that truth. If you do not have saving faith in God, you suppress that truth. You say, I'm a good person, I'm religious, I don't need a new birth, I don't need a new life because I am good. And you're suppressing the truth. You say, my sin doesn't matter, my sin's not a big deal, my sin doesn't separate me from God, let me just get away from that snake. You get angry at God, you yell at God, you curse God, you say, I don't want, any, I don't want God to tell me how to live, I don't want anything to do with God, let me get away from him and you're running, but you will not outrun him. You will not outrun the snakes. You will not outrun your own sin. You will not outrun God's judgment. You cannot get away from him. And so what does God do? He sends his son, the image of God, the image of man. His son in the likeness of sinful flesh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. In the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus didn't sin, but he took on our flesh, so to speak. the limitations of being a human. He was rich, though for our sake he became poor. The very thing that is killing us, our sin, he becomes, in a sense, the image of that. He never sinned, but he becomes the image of that so that you have to stop and you have to look at him and you have to say, it's not being in Adam's image that's separating me from God. It's not God being too judgmental that's separating me from him. It's not the way God made the world. The only thing that is separating me from God is my sin. And I want to look at Jesus up on that cross and I want to believe that he can heal me, that he can forgive me. That's what it means to be saved, to stop running from God. Stop running. Stop trying to live your life your own way. Stop building your life on the shallow things of this world. Stop running from God and look to him and believe that he loves you and that he sent his son to die for you who is lifted up. You can't do that on your own strength. Nobody in their right mind would stop being chased by snakes. Nobody left in their own devices would ever stop running away from God and just say, you know what? I'm just gonna give this a try. You would never do that. It takes the Holy Spirit getting a hold of you and turning you around. But when you turn around and you look at Jesus on the cross, then, Jesus says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never given their life to Christ, that this morning would be the day you stop running would be the day you stop trusting in your own righteousness, you stop trusting in your own status as a good person, you stop trusting in your, how long you've been going to church, you stop trusting in those things. And your soul trust, your soul boast becomes that Jesus died for your sins. Lord, what a strange thing to boast in that our Savior gave his life 
for those who had grumbled, for those who had complained, for those who had deserved the serpents. Lord, we do see you lifted up on the cross. We see you lifted up in the judge's seat. We know that you're not on trial. We are. You're not the accused. We are the guilty. And yet in you, Lord, we see a God who is eager to forgive. We're thankful, Lord, that you extend salvation as freely as you gave your son. You sent him to the world unhindered with prophecy pointing to him and everything. And now he's here this morning presented in your word through John 3. I pray those arrows would point our hearts back to him and he would not just be lifted up on the cross, but that he'd be lifted up in our own hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.